Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series over the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Here we go. Okay, we're, uh, we're in John 5 today, and we're continuing this, uh, this encounter that Jesus had with a man who had uh, been paralyzed for 38 years. This took place at the Pool of Bethesda in, uh, in Jerusalem. And so uh, there's all these people gathered around this pool of water that was probably a spring-fed kind of thing, and that periodically the, the springs themselves would bubble up. And whenever they did, then the, the minerals and the warmth of that pool would uh, sort of bring about a, uh, an opportunity for people to feel better and perhaps even uh, in their minds uh, get healed. So there's all these people, these uh, people that have uh, different ailments who are sort of uh, gathered around this pool and they're waiting for that to happen. Their belief was, was that actually the pool itself was inhabited by spirits and, and, and maybe angels of that, of, of that kind. And so what would happen is whenever the bubbling would occur, then the thought was, oh, an angel has come down from heaven and has stirred the water. And so that even makes it more uh, important to be the first one to get into the water. And so that, there's an important aspect of that because when Jesus comes up to the man and asks him the question, do you want to be healed, then part of the part of the conversation is is that the man is frustrated because he says every time the waters bubble up and I want to get there first somebody gets there ahead of me so that tells you a little bit about the desperate plight that this man felt and to some degree how competitive it was there at the uh, at the pool and then plus the fact that he probably himself didn't have any uh, friends or didn't have any relatives that would come see him and that kind of thing in order to help him uh, get into the uh, get into the pool and this would have all been a fantastic low-key miracle in the eyes of everybody, of course, except the man who had been healed. He was, he was thrilled about it. But it wouldn't have been a big deal except for one slight little detail. And that was what? What day did this happen on? It took place on the Sabbath day, right? And because there was a, a, a thought or a sentiment about the, about the Sabbath in the eyes of some of the people that were a bit more, shall we say, legalistic or, or, or attentive to it, we might say it that way, that they were very disturbed that Jesus would dare do something such as this on the Sabbath day, and further that he would involve this man in the sin against the Sabbath day. Now, in what way did Jesus involve this man or instigate this man's sinfulness on the Sabbath? He healed him. That wasn't a sin to be healed. But what was the sin? Yeah, Jesus said what? Take up your bed and walk, right? So pick that thing up you've been laying on for 38 years, and now take it, take it wherever it is that uh, you need to go. And that's what got their attention initially. Because then the Pharisees said to this man, who told you that you could do that? Don't you know that this is a Sabbath? You're breaking the Sabbath law. And then the, guy, the man said, well, the guy that healed me. And he, had, at that point, did not know it was Jesus. He didn't even know who Jesus was. All he knew was, was that he wanted to be healed. So we had talked at, at length last week about that question. 
which is a very provocative question that Jesus asked prior to healing the man. He asked the question, do you want to be healed? Is that like an obvious, was there like an obvious answer to that? You would think, yes. What else might have Jesus been thinking in terms of asking that question? Would, would there be more to it than just that? Man have faith. Do I? Did he have faith? Well, he, he could have had faith, although that you, you're saying that's what Jesus maybe was looking for. Yeah. yeah. Whether he even wanted. Whether he wanted it. All right. So see, there's a there sometimes is a difference between having faith in the possibility of being healed, and then contemplating if I do get healed. How will that change my life? Now, in that moment, I'm pretty sure the guy just said, yeah, I want to be healed. And he wasn't thinking about the ramifications of that. But when you think, when you step back from a little bit and you think, okay, what would be the ramifications of a guy whose whole life has been spent for 38 years, his life has been there on that pallet and presumably around that pool, but we don't know that for sure, but for sure, he can't walk for 38 years. That's his life. And now Jesus comes along and he has to entertain the possibility that his life is now going to change in a profound and radical way. Do you want to be healed? Yeah. I Jackie. thought you were saying what would be in a change. He would have to go from laying around all day to probably getting up and going to work and stuff. Like get a job. <laughs> Yes, I mean, that's kind of what, because, because prior to that, how would he have had the means to eat a meal or how he would have to beg? I mean, that's how he'd have to do it because, because he was not able to, um, uh, to get up and move around and be productive in the way that, that you would in order to, to earn a living. So he's having to live off of the, off the generosity of other people. And, and, they, and the expectation would be of him what? People would help. They would be willing to help him because they would say, well, of course we're going to help you because, look, you can't, you can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. You can't provide for yourself. Well, once he can walk, note what ha- would happen to the expectation that other people would have. What would happen? If he tried to do the old life, which was to beg, people are going to look at him and do What? Get a job, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what would happen, right? And so, see, there's more to that question do you want to be healed? And Jesus, he puts that before the man. And we would assume that he would say yes, but, you know, it's kind of fun to think, well, what would happen if he had said no? (laughs) Well, do we ever say no to the possible gifts that God offers? When he puts it before us and says, here it is. Do you want it? Would we ever say no? Ooh, it depends on what the gift is. And it also depends on if in receiving the gift, that obligates me in some way or compels me to live my life in a different way, like that guy did. Like, what if he offers you forgiveness? And then he has the audacity to say, as you have received forgiveness from me, now go and forgive your brother. Or forgive that annoying person in your life. Or forgive that individual 
who doesn't think he did anything wrong to you and isn't about to apologize. Because as you've received that gift from me, then the expectation is what? That I will share that gift with someone else. Ooh, I don't know if I want that gift. Keith. What about from the, this morning's message, he hands you his cross to bear? Ooh, <laughs> you, just, you just added 15 minutes to the sermon in, in the late service. Yeah, yeah. What if he does that? See, what if, what if when I was offered the gift, I thought that would make life easier? And maybe even, in fact, some of those crosses that I've been bearing for many, many years would disappear. And all of a sudden, not only do they not disappear, but son of a gun, he adds more to it. <laughs> and then says, follow me. Ooh, that's a great insight. I'm going to think about that during the sermon hymn today. That'll be pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mark. Well, that's much deeper what I had to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, just re- it just reminds me of the statement I think of often. It says, you know, be careful what you ask for. Ooh, yeah, because you might get it. You might get it. And then you it's get everything that... Well, you get everything that goes with it, see? But the life of faith really, I think, revolves around the notion that when God gives a gift, it's a good thing. It's just the problem is his idea good and my idea good are not always, we're not always on the same page. And we don't, I think we often get a little short-sighted and we we think in terms of the immediate benefit of the gift but we don't necessarily think in terms of the long-term ramifications. And so that's when I do think that it probably requires of us that that point to walk by faith, not by sight. So walk by faith means that I'm walking in the promise that he assures me that this is good for me. Even though in the moment when I'm walking in it, it might feel painful to me, and it might feel like this is not good for me. I don't want anything to do with it. And that's kind of that idea of the cross thing. You know, we, I think in, in many ways we would just, we'd just as soon have Jesus but not the cross. And the reality is they go together. But the reason they go together is because look what Jesus did for us. What, if Jesus didn't have the cross, then why did he even come? So we say, well, I want to walk with Jesus. I want him in my life. I want to follow him. I want to be his disciple. I want to be all those things, but I don't want to go through all the things he went through. I want him to go through it, not me. And the beauty of it is, I think, is that it does give a radical perspective toward suffering and toward inconvenience and toward interruptions in life and toward all the things that we sort of would say would be bad, bad, I don't want anything to do with. It gives you a different perspective on it. Because when you, re- when you take to heart those words, take up your cross and follow him, then what that implies is that the cross will be there. That's a different perspective than having to think in terms of the cross as being some sort of evidence that God doesn't love me anymore or that he doesn't care about me. See, it's a whole different, it's a whole different way of seeing it. And when you look at it that way, 
that's a power, that becomes a powerful driver for you uh, each and every day, okay? So, so, so then we also talked about the, a little bit about the Sabbath. That's what's up on the board here for those of you that happened to miss last week and haven't yet uh, listened to the podcast, okay? So that's what, that's what this is up here. And, you know, we kind of went on and on with it a little bit, but we just kind of talked about that from the perspective of the importance that the Sabbath was and ought to be. You know, it's still part of the Ten Commandments, even though it was what the Pharisees and the scribes and the, and, the, and the Jewish leaders did was they took the commandments and they turned it into like 700 individual and big volumes of, of writing all about what is work and what is not work. But, and, and so we look at that and we go, oh boy, that's just like too much. But we don't want to lose the main point. And the main point is what? Remember the Sabbath day keep it holy, is that that's a good thing to set aside that day of the week where that's a day when I'm not thinking about all the other stuff that I'm thinking about and doing the other five or seven, six days of the week. And that's good for us because we can get so obsessive about making a living and paying our bills and and getting ahead and achieving great things and changing the world and all those things, right? Well, I mean, we can, and these are all good things. But we can lose sight of what's really important because we crowd it out with everything else. And that's not like we meant to do it. It just sort of happens, doesn't it? So he's saying one day a week, that all gets set aside. And that day of the week... You have to protect because the world will try to encroach itself on you, and these are all the different ways that that can occur. Yeah, and so that's where you have to stand up to, people of faith have to stand up to the world and say no. But you also have to stand up to yourself and say no. Because the biggest culprit here is not out there. The biggest culprit's right there. I'm the one. So there, we don't want to lose sight of that in, in terms of this Sabbath stuff, okay? All right, so let's get into the reading for today, which is verses, verses 14. All right, so the guy got healed, and Jesus says, take your mat and go home, which is kind of interesting, or take your mat and walk. He didn't say go home. I don't even know if the guy had a home. But so the guy's walking around with his, with his satchel, with his, his, his mat, and the Pharisees nail him and say, why are you, you shouldn't be working. And he says, well, the guy that told me. And meanwhile, there's this crowd that's forming. Now, why would a crowd be forming, do you think? Because a miraculous thing just occurred. And who doesn't want to get in on that deal, right? So this crowd is a forming. And what Luke says is that Jesus was nowhere to be found. He withdrew. Just a thought here, why do you think he did? What do you think? Why, why would Jesus... I mean, this would be a wonderful opportunity for him to do some teaching, right? But a crowd starts to form, and Jesus withdraws. Yes? It wasn't time yet for uh, him to reveal himself. Yeah, and Jesus was very, um, I think, particular about when he would and when he wouldn't. And so we often see this in the, on the heels of a big miracle, 
another example is when he fed the 5,000. He feeds the 5,000 people, and, and of course, there's already a crowd of people there, like 5,000 people, right? That's a big crowd, right? And so they're already there, and, but what the Bible says is that they were starting to think in terms of making him a king. And Jesus withdraws. So you see, what it was all about for Jesus was the walk of faith. It wasn't all about being popular, and it wasn't all about doing a great miracle, and it wasn't always about tr- attracting numbers of people, right? And if he perceived that they were getting the wrong idea as to why he came in the first place, he would walk away. Kind of interesting. So he walks away. So here we pick it up in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him, that's the guy that was healed, in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, that is a very interesting thing that he said to the guy, is it not? Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What do you make of that? Yes, take a shot. Oh, we have a risky person here. Good, good. This is something that I've thought about for a long time because I wonder, you know, what exactly did he do? Because it doesn't really say, and I was thinking about the water bucket. Yeah. And I was thinking about the idolatry and divination that was probably going on because people believed that this angel started the water. Mm-hmm. And they wanted this angel to make an appearance. So they were practicing these things to get this to happen. And if he was in that crowd there, then he was probably doing a lot of this. Oh, thing. okay. So your thoughts are that while he was um, desperate to be healed, he perhaps was giving in to what might have been some of the ritual or occult practices around that. I didn't even think about that. That's good. That could be. I mean, again, see, Jesus says sin no more, and we're all sort of wondering what was the sin, right? We're all thinking about that. Okay, what other thoughts that you might have about that, Philip? Uh, It's a matter of perspective where what could be worse happening if he continues sitting is the separation from God and the, all the bad ramifications that come from that. So, for example, I mean... Go ahead, I'm just of, thinking. Instead of, you know, mm-hmm. being in paradise in heaven, the alternative, if you continue sitting... Oh. You know, that, that's, that's worse. Well, that would be worse. There are worse things than laying around and not being able to walk, and hell's one of them, yeah. Okay, so that's, a, that's see, we're all kind of sort of thinking, wonder what that could be. Okay, here's kind of where my thought went. One of the beliefs in that day was, was that when an ailment or a, or a, a disease or a, an impairment of some kind happened to somebody, then it was a result of some sin that they had done in their life. I mean, that was the, it wasn't like that people looked at that as one of the possible options of how it came to be that you would have this impairment. It was an ironclad belief. Oh, then you have this impairment, so that means you must have sinned in your life, and this is God's punishment of you, and then you got what you deserve. And how we know that is that there is another story in the Bible where Jesus and his disciples are kind of walking around, and there's a guy that was born blind. 
And the disciples pose the question to Jesus, and they say, who, who sinned in that man's life? Who sinned? Was, did, was he the one that sinned, or did his parents sin? And because they sinned, this is the consequence of that sin, and this is God's punishment for that sin. So, you know, that thought was in there, okay? So when I read this here, what I'm kind of thinking, again, because we're not told the whole story, but it sort of suggests that Jesus was aware that there was something in this man's life previous that had contributed to this. And so what he's saying to him here is sin no more. That you have, you have now received the healing, and so now live your life in a healed way. Now again, that is all supposition, because this is one of those cases again, where we're looking at something that Jesus says, and we're thinking, where's the rest of it? You know, like, where, where's the rest of the story, so to speak? So then the man knows it's Jesus. So then he's able to go to the scribes and the Pharisees, and to say to them that it was Jesus who's the one who heals, who healed me. And now what John does is he adds sort of a parenthetical statement. And the statement is, now we know why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. They were persecuting him because in their minds he was committing a pretty bad thing. And that was he was going deliberately against God's law in their minds, that had to do with doing these kinds of things on the Sabbath. But then Jesus answered them by saying, my father is working until now, so I am working. Ooh. Jesus has now upped the ante. He's gone from being a miracle worker who does stuff on, on Sabbath that will annoy and irritate them He's now raised the level of the reason why they not only want to persecute him, but possibly they would be maybe motivated to kill him. And that's because he's doing what? He's not just working. He's equating himself as what? Yes. Yes. So my father is working until now. What is God the Father doing? He's working until now. Well, what's he doing? What, what's the work he's doing? <laughs> so he's not doing anything. He's sitting back up in heaven and having Jesus do it. Okay. Is it? <laughs> I, I don't. You know, when you, yeah, Phil? Uh, he's helping his creation? Yeah. You know, when we talk about God as creating the world in uh, six days and then seven, the seventh day he rested, what did he do on the eighth day? <laughs> what do you do on the eighth day? We'll go back to work. Yeah, I mean, you know, because you got to get the, keep the world going, right? Things did God, so did God do all the creating there was to do in six days and then that was it, I'm done creating. No, every single time, every day, every minute, every moment, God, there's another aspect of creation. There's another thing God has created. He never stopped working he, permanently. He just said, I got to take a break on the seventh day because that's partly also for your benefit. So you'll do it. Can't work 24 7, 365. Yeah. Uh, reading this verse about uh, how, how his father's working, he's doing also, something that uh, just really hit me is uh, this kind of goes back to um, 
when it talks about wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives as Christ laid his life down for the church. Oh, you're going to go down that path today, huh? Yeah. You know, what I'm getting at, though, is I remember seeing a statistic that, like, for children, 94% of children will become followers of Christ if their father takes the faith seriously. That number drops substantially to, I think, like 16 or 20% if the father is not walking in faith, but just the mother is. Mm -hmm. And then it drops down to 4% if only the children are walking in faith and not the parents. And so I think it kind of really goes to show you God is following the father and how, I mean, we look to God as our father, as a father figure, is he does, we follow, Jesus does the same. I think I also kind of see that in like families, for example, when like our fathers are walking in faith and we submit to our father and we follow him. And our fathers are walking in faith, we follow our fathers and it ultimately leads us to God. Let me think on that. Okay? Let me think on that. Other thoughts? Other thoughts? Okay, let's keep going. So now, John kind of takes a break from telling the story so that he can kind of, um, uh, kind of fill in the blanks for us as to where did all this animosity come from between Jesus and the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leaders, Okay? So we pick it up in verse 18. He says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling, him, uh, calling God his own father and making himself equal to God. So look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Now, I love this. That little word, so. So Jesus said to them, because the reason why I love it is because Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He's not accidentally or coincidentally saying stuff and then later going, oh, God, why did I say that? <laughs> Have you ever done that? Have you done that? Where you thought at the time it was the best thing ever that you could say and that, in fact, what it might do is diffuse a conflicted situation. People just don't understand, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to add an explanation to the situation so that once they understand better, everything will be okay. And you think it through in your mind, and you say, this is the one thing you can say, and it will be perfect. And then you say it, and what happens? A forest fire blows up in your face. It makes it worse before it makes it better, or it doesn't ever make it better. And you're thinking, oh, it was such a good idea at the time. Anybody ever done that on social media, by the way? <laughs> oh, all right, now are you going to raise your hand, uh, Scott, to make a testimony here, or are you just raising your hand because that's happened to you? Okay, perfect, yeah. <laughs> He is a man of few words, but when he speaks, you better listen. So Jesus could have left well enough, well enough alone at this point. Kind of damage is done, but, you know, probably repairable. Well, you know, we can debate what Jesus said, and, you know, he probably didn't even mean to say it. He probably just slipped out, and it just came out that way, and let's cut him some slack and give him benefit of the doubt because he's a really good guy, and plus, he healed the guy. 
That isn't what happened. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, kind of to Tim's point. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you, you may marvel. Jesus has just signed his own death warrant. He could have left it alone. He could have, he, it could have been just a misunderstanding. It could have been just a misinterpretation of the rabbinic law concerning the uh, Sabbath. And we all could have said, yes, it was a misunderstanding. We're all going to go home now, and we're all going to think about it. And but besides that, we're still happy the guy got healed. And Jesus throws gas on the flame. And he turns what could have been something that, you know, okay, little questions about him, not sure, to now we're sure. He sees himself as God. He's publicly stating that fact. And now our position toward him has changed. But this is not new. This is not new. All the way back when uh, Jesus was encountering and speaking with the woman at the well. Remember that? The lady in John 4? The, uh, the English translation didn't bring it out so well, but, but uh, Bob pointed out to me that the Greek says in John 4, 26, Jesus said, I am he who's speaking to you. And the Greek indicates that Jesus was using the words that are the, is the very name of God. I am is God's name, right? And Jesus was saying already back then, it's just that he was saying it in Samaria. And the Jewish leaders weren't going to follow him into Samaria. They didn't want to have anything to do with Samaria. And so by, you know, if you say it over there, not, not a big deal. But if you say it here, and that's what Jesus is saying here, big deal. Yeah. So what tone of voice would he what tone of voice was he using? <laughs> well, let's see. Let me think. Let me think. Yeah, well, okay, let's shift it a little bit. What, what would have made sense to you in terms of the tone of voice? Well, he had to be authoritarian. He had to come with... Some authority there? Yeah. But yet not yeah not really snooty or anything he's stating it as is yeah the reality is is that i would guess that the tone of voice or the means of the delivery was not as significant as what actually he was saying because what he's saying was tantamount to calling himself god well of course we would say he is god and he would do that but in their minds not and in their minds, for anybody, any human that would have done that would have been struck dead. And they probably would have been a little surprised that he wasn't struck dead. But what indications from the Old Testament would they have gotten that that would happen? If you blaspheme God like that, you are calling down hellfire and brimstone on you. And they would have recalled some stories from the Old Testament where that was the case, right? Like, remember that one story? They're bringing the ark back and four guys are holding it, you know, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark, they're holding it like that, okay? And remember, and one guy trips 
and then the ark is about to fall to the ground. And so another guy rushes up and does what? He catches the ark, right, to keep it from tipping over. And then in thankfulness to what that guy did, what happened to him? He died. Now, uh, that story would have made an impression, right, in that moment. Don't mess with God. Don't get too close to God. Don't equate yourself with God. So they would have remembered that and thought, okay, this is a pretty serious thing. And maybe perhaps on some level they thought to themselves, he just did the impardonable sin. And now we, because he didn't drop dead, maybe God now wants to use us to drop him dead. And that, see, what happens now in John, there's a shift in tone. Because now it's very clear that there's not going to be a reconciliation between Jesus and the Jewish hierarchy. Jackie. Jesus is always portrayed as like humble and serving. Nice. Know, like, you yes. know, so if the movies do that, that's got to be the way it's told. Well, yeah, it would be that. <laughs> but um, what makes me think that that's true is that when like Pontius Pilate was given him to, to kill him, mm -hmm. he said, I don't find a problem with this guy. I think the guy was very likable. And yeah. so if you were haughty and bossy and... Yeah. No, people wouldn't like you. Yeah. It, it, I, I don't know. That's well, but, and he also saw through people. And when you, when you're, have you ever noticed this? When you're in the presence of someone who sees through you, that's a different moment than when you're with somebody perhaps who um, is kind of shallow and, and, and surfacy and that sort of thing. That's a deeper moment. And you wouldn't have to, Jesus would not have had to be somebody who would have been putting on airs. I mean, not that he would, but he just wouldn't have, he wouldn't have to do that. Because when you're standing in the presence of Jesus, you're standing in the presence of pure love. And when that love is looking into your heart and soul, it's pretty hard to hide behind all the other ways that we try to hide. You know, we do that with each other, but couldn't do that with Jesus. So, uh, Bob. Yeah, I'd just like to add that the Jews never directly referred to God as Father until about the 10th century. They called him the Father of Israel, but never addressed him as Father. So would that have been too um, personal or too well, familiar? Is that what you're saying? Here, that would be, he is my Father and I am his Son. And therefore, I'm equated with Father, and the Jews would never address They wouldn't have even gone there then. Okay. And they never did in their writings until about the 10th century. You know, that must have been why it was so hard for many of them to connect to the New Testament church, because, because here are St. Paul's writings, you know, as an example. Yeah, see, that would have been so abhorrent to them to even say that. Because here we're now then claiming or claiming that God claims us as his children, and how dare we even go there? Yeah, good point, great point. Okay, yes, Brenda. There's another factor here that we haven't addressed, and that is the Romans. The Romans. The Jews were in a very special relationship with the, with the Romans. Mm -hmm. They were allowed to do things religiously that no other group right. in the empire was allowed to do. Mm -hmm. And it was because, probably because, they were such a long-standing group. Mm -hmm. They had done things the same way for so long 
And here's Jesus coming in, changing things up. He is disrupting the order of things. Yeah. And yeah. I think that many of the Jews may have just been so caught up in how are the Romans are going to come down on us. Yeah. They're going to kill us. Mm -hmm. And they did 70 years later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does. Did you hear what she said about the Romans? Okay. She's talking about the fact that because Roman was, Rome was the occupying government in, in Judea, but they allowed the Jews to have sort of a special status, if you will, kind of a, you know, we're going to let you do your thing as long as doing your thing doesn't encroach on our thing. Now, what was their thing? What was Rome's thing that the Jews had to make sure they didn't encroach on? It had to do with taxes, right? It had to do with capital punishment. It had to do with those things. And so those things, then the Jewish guys said, well, we have to go to Pilate for those things. By the way, if you ever want a really great book to read. It's an older book. It's been around for a while by Walter Meyer. The name of the book is called Pontius Pilate. And, and it's, a, it's kind of a historical fiction, if you will, but it's obviously set into the history of Pilate. And Walter Meyer was, a, he's retired now, but he was a professor at Western Michigan University, but he's also a Lutheran pastor. And so he's a great writer, so it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. But he, treat, he, he goes into a treatment of that as to, as to um, the relationship of the Roman government to the Jewish authorities and why there, as Brenda pointed out, there was way more at stake than just their religion. It was also the, the sort of perks of being Jewish in that particular place. Now, so wh wh what do we say about that? Well, one thing is, is that now Jesus comes in and you start to realize that he was more of a risk than just your spiritual walk. And I'm not trying to say that spiritual walk is a, is a I'm not trying to diminish it. I'm just saying that there was, a, there was more going on. And so when somebody would come to faith and follow Jesus, that meant that they might be accused of being part of a group that was seeking to uh, be insurrectionists with, uh, against Rome. And there certainly were enough of those anyway. You had your hand up earlier. Did you have your hand up earlier? Way back, yeah. No, when you talked about how some of them, when Jesus was talking, they might be saying, does he really mean what he's saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, are we misreading this? Yeah, sure. He says truly, truly, like yeah. he's being authoritative in what he's saying. Yes. Truly, truly, like yes, me. yes. This is important. I mean, read my lips is exactly what he's saying. I don't want you to. I don't want anybody walking away with the wrong idea here. God's the Father. I'm the Son. We're both divine. And that came across real clear. Yeah. Thing that struck me the most was the words that he says. Now I am working. Oh, now I'm working? Yeah. I'm thinking about that, that he came as a baby, a totally innocent baby, and at this point, he knows that he's near death. He said, now I am working. And what will really bring about the resurrection is his death. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't, you kind of get the feeling here uh, maybe an inkling of it, that his death was part of the plan. Now, we would all say, well, of course it was. That's, it, 
It was, he was supposed to die because that was how he was going to be Savior. Of course it was. Well, it was a, such a profound thought you just gave, Pastor Roddy. But, but we start to get a sense of that here, that he's deliberately going there. But it isn't only his death, his resurrection. Well, it would follow from that, but yeah. they would not, nobody would have known that at this point. The, the resurrection would have been, of course it was part of the plan. Thank goodness it was part of the plan, right? But in order to have a resurrection, you have to have a death. And that was the big shocker. Yeah. You also read at this time when he associated the Father. What's so bad is God the Father was in a box behind the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest could kind of go in with a rope tied to his leg once a year. Yeah, so they could yank him out. And, yeah. So now you're telling me someone's actually having a conversation with him, which is another important thing. Right. Yeah. It, this, was, this was like they never saw this coming, and they never would have expected it, and then when it came, they didn't know what to do with it. And that's why God's in charge and we're not. Let's go down to verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one and has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So truly, truly, I say to you, read my lips, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Is there any question now that Jesus equates himself with the Father? None. None. And now his fate is sealed. So it's kind of interesting that he's talking here about people who come to faith in in him and the difference that that faith makes in terms of the perspective that you can now have on life. And that's kind of my take on that part where he says in, uh, uh, in, in the second part there, verse 24, he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. See, what the, the, I guess the point I'm thinking about here is what is the difference that knowing that you have eternal life as opposed to eternal judgment facing you, what is the difference that makes in your life now? That we're all going to stand before the judgment seat. Yes, we're all going to do that, right? But believing in Jesus means that you'll be ushered into heaven, and not believing in Jesus means you will be ushered into hell. That's what this is talking about. So what difference does knowing that now make in your life now, knowing that the ultimate benefit of that will be then. What difference does it make now? Peace. You have peace, even if you're not experiencing it. No, it's there. It's there, but even if you don't feel it, it's there. And sometimes we don't. And many times we don't, yes. The difference it makes when you know you have life versus when you are fearful of death when you know that you're being judged in a forgiven way. That was swift. <laughs> My greatest fear just happened right there. I don't mind being human. I just don't want to be it in front of you. That's the problem. 
when, when the, uh, I forgot, now I've totally lost my, turn. I was, I was going to make this really profound point and now it's totally gone. All right, so, so the difference that that makes, okay? The difference that makes, yeah. Your living, your good works are a sign of gratitude rather than hoping. That's one of those things that happens, isn't it? Is that now I can do my best and flunk. And I don't have to worry that somehow God says, oh, that was it. You, oh, you're going the other place because you messed up. It frees you up, doesn't it? And instead of thinking that you have to somehow earn something, you're actually doing what you do out of a response that the thing has already been earned for you. Yeah, Phil. We, today, we also have the benefit of all this happening. I've already happened in the past. Like, we can look back on it and reference it. But during that time when Jesus was actually telling the people these things, like, none of these actions have come to pass yet. Yeah. You know, he, he wasn't, he, he wasn't, uh, uh, he didn't die on the cross. He wasn't resurrected. Right. Like, all that had yet to come. Yeah. So the people there had to even put even more faith in what Jesus was saying yeah. it, it, in a way because none of that had happened yet. Yeah. But now that it's all happened and we have the benefit of that, then everybody in the world now believes and we don't... See, there still is, right? Yeah, yeah. See, the, the evidence is not changing people's minds. Now, it might change some people's minds, but you would think, here, here's the evidence. Here, here's the, the sign that it's all real and just take hold of it. And, and, and that's when we kind of get in our own way, don't we? We, we sort of present, present something that, yeah, that's what it says, but. And I, but I agree with you. I think they would have had a little tougher road. And maybe in some sense, that's why Jesus did more of those physical miracles and signs and things like that that he did to sort of communicate to people that I'm the real deal. I'm the real deal. Yeah, Peggy. Oh, did I just say what you were going to say? The miracles that they had then, that we're not seeing now, they had that balance. Yeah. So now we have the written word, the history and all, but we are not seeing daily miracles. Right. So I'd say that it's balanced then and now. Right. Actually, you said it better than I could have said it, yeah. <laughs> well, that's because your have you noticed that her handwriting is, yes, it's just, it's artistic, it's spectacular. So, see, I added that part. You didn't actually say that, but I added that part. Okay, very good. All right, so some thoughts here about perspective of life versus perspective of judgment, death. I put kind of some thoughts down in terms of a little table there. So when you have a, a life perspective, bad things happen in life, right? But God works good out of all the things that had happened, and we're reminded by him that we are his beloved. He forgives our sin and joy then guides us. That's a life perspective. What, a, what an amazing day you would have in that perspective. Because good things happen, bad things happen. But when you have a perspective of judgment and death, notice the slight little shift. Bad things happen because I'm unlovable. God is indifferent to my life on earth. I hope that God will love me because I'm trying hard. Maybe God will forgive me, but I doubt he will. I live in fear. Who would want to go down that road? 
given the choice. And yet so many people do because it's a matter of, can I sort of grab onto this life on my own terms instead of accepting it on Jesus' terms? And that's the struggle, isn't it? That's the struggle. Okay, we're going to stop here. We're stopping before the truly, truly, okay? (laughs) But let me tell you something. It doesn't get any better. Jesus doesn't just stop. He needs to stop. He needs to, don't say anymore, Jesus. You've said enough, right? Oh, no. He's got to keep adding fuel to the fire, right? So we're going to pick that up next, uh, next week. Oh, let's see now. Are we picking it up next week? What are we picking up? Oh, yeah. Okay, so next week is the red letter challenge. So for six weeks, you will be dying to know what this is. All right, so that's what we're going to do. So, so I'll be taking the first lesson next week, and then I'll be out of town doing a wedding. Gina will take the second one, and then I'll bring us home with the rest of them. Unless Gina is so enamored in doing it that she'll say, oh, please, please, please let me do it from now on. And I'll say, Yes. Okay, well, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together, and thank you for the way that the Word speaks to us in such a, a profound way. We're just, uh, we're just kind of stunned here about uh, how this all was uh, going down with, uh, with Jesus and, the, and, the, and the, the, the Jewish leaders, and how it just seems that Jesus is almost uh, hell-bent on, on dying. And yet, when you think about it, that's why Jesus came. He came because he loved us enough to know that in dying and rising again, that would pay the price that needed to be paid. Help us, Lord, to never take that for granted, never to just kind of turn that into some sort of light sort of thing. Help us be grateful for that. And then in that gratitude, help us to, to, to show the gratitude each day in a way that makes not only a profound difference in our own lives, but perhaps even can in some way influence the lives of other people. Watch over this, us this week. Be, be with us and, and keep us close to you until we're together again. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.